Yesteris, keeper of the sacred library. You must be here about the tiny bookcase. Then follow me. I've sent two adventurers out to find stories. So join me here by my crystal ball and let us see where they are now. And I said, Dumpty, you egg-faced savage, drop the knife. Bloody hell. What happened then? You have an incoming scry? Oh, yeah. That's Yesteris. He's our magical benefactor. Oh, good. Another midden with a wine list. What's this one called? The Electric Butterflies. Really? How unique. And you would be... I'm Cherise Sarunian, and I'm a writer and a filmmaker. Oh, so you'll definitely have a story for me, then. You can bet your beard. Well, you won't do that. I do. Oh, you do? Well, in that case, let's get going. Ben, you start us off. This time, it's The Last Bullet. Sure thing. Let's tell some stories. The last bullet. She had taken another one. Like a bloodhound with a peculiar olfactory persuasion, she had unearthed it. This one had been sandwiched between the mattress and the bed frame. Blake couldn't help but imagine the sneer of triumph on her mum's face as she held it up to the light. A small victory in a war that had been raging since the ninth grade. She wondered how quickly the search had begun once Blake had left for school. What was she doing when the conviction soaked into her brain? Afternoon gardening, maybe? snipping deadheads to maintain the order amongst the chaos, or washing the breakfast dishes, the lemony aroma of the suds driving her into a berserk rage. Blake imagined her quickly tearing off those gloves, either rough gardening ones or moist rubber ones, and racing through the house searching all of the secret places. Like a Stasi agent with drilled-in paranoia, her mom had gone through her bedroom, searching in all the crafty nooks. She had found it where she had once insisted no monsters existed. Perhaps she had let out a little cry upon making the discovery. She might have convinced herself it had been a compassionate cry, when really it had been a howl of victory. All of this flashed through Blake's mind as she held the mattress away from the frame, looking at where it had once been. She lowered it soundlessly and sat on the bed. Blake hadn't rushed up to her room on any kind of sexual impulse, she realised, but one of fear. Fear ruled her guts. Fear of the person who was supposed to care for her and help her grow. Instead, her mum had weaponized shame and used it with righteous fervour. Blake realised as her mind went blank with the shock of it that her mum had won. That had been her last bullet, confiscated by the household's higher power, just like all the others. She remembered the first time she had been caught out. It had been a gift from Daisy before she went off to college. A tool for discovery, a means to find some joy. Her mum had found it on her nightstand. Then had come the lashings of intolerance, framed as faux religious compassion, the threat that her mum might tell her father, and finally the citation of state law. A person commits an offence if, 
Knowing its content and character, he wholesale promotes or possesses with intent to wholesale promote any obscene material or obscene device. She remembered the scattered feelings of confusion forming into mind-blanking terror. Her arbiter had declared it not only morally wrong, but somehow implicated her in illegal activity. A ferocious ban on shopping trips and a sudden loss of privileges followed, as if she had been breaking windows or smoking. It had been enough to stop her for a month. At school, she had listened to the others talk about it confidently, without any fear. Blake had felt despondent. That feeling had slowly grown into a defiant anger. She had begun ordering them online. Different speeds and settings, bright colours and attractive designs. Low-profile humming so she could keep coming. Her very own personal resistance in the belt buckle state where the motto is friendship. Blake had amassed a serious collection, each one served as a little sign that she could be in control of her life. Some of them were never used. Others had seen use in rare moments of solitude or daring. All of them had been hidden, sequestered in increasingly devious locations. Blake had not known that her mum was capable of total war, but that was before the woman had begun checking Blake's packages and confiscating what she found. Neither of them could speak a word about what was going on to each other after that first time. Internally, they sought for dominance of the issue. Externally, they sat and watched TV with Pop. The war had raged on through her senior year. One by one, her store of bullets had been depleted. With her website supply lines cut and mandatory backpack searches becoming the new normal, Blake had watched her collection wither. She had begun to move them if she feared they might be discovered. Day after day, she obsessed over them. Her determination was matched only by her mum's. As their war of attrition continued, it made meaningful conversations impossible. It poisoned all family meals. It left the warm and caring environment of her early years in tatters. And now she had taken the last one. As Blake came out of the shock, she realised that she already had a plan. She didn't need courage anymore, she had rage. With careful familial manoeuvring, she arranged a lift with her pop so that she could meet some friends at Era Coffee, you know, near the old hospital cemetery. From there, she was fairly sure she'd be able to find it. It was somewhere the others had talked about. A few had even been inside. As he pulled up outside the coffee shop, her pop had turned the engine off. His creased face looked concerned as he turned to look at her. Everything okay? I feel like I haven't seen much of you, and you'll be leaving soon. In a distracted but heartfelt manner, she spoke to him for a few minutes about college and school. Reassured, he started the engine back up as a sign that she should get out and waved goodbye. Blake went into the coffee shop and bought a takeout latte. She knew she had about an hour before he would come to pick her up, and her destination was only a quarter of a mile away. But that meant that she would have to leave time to get back here as well. The walk took her alongside a long straight road. With every car engine whine, she felt the fear of discovery creep up her spine. The dusk light began to fade, and the oncoming car headlights blazed white as they flashed past. Finally, she reached the little strip of shops. One touted vintage clothes, another specialised in fixing woeful tattoos. Among them were a handful of bars, each vying for her attention with striking colours or intriguing names. As darkness truly claimed the sky, she saw the neons flicker to life above the single-storey establishments. Nestled in this small satellite of alternate life was her destination. It had a neon sign of its own, bright green against the purple night. Forbidden. The letters called to her, and she smiled at the O, which was represented by an apple. Blacked-out windows spoke of the painfully interesting contents they concealed. The old fear of being caught welled up in her, but she shoved it down by letting herself feel the hurt again. 
She took a deep breath as she walked towards the door. The fumes from passing cars and the slight tang of the urinals at the bar next door filled her nose and mouth. Blake coughed as she pushed open the door and stepped inside. A wall of fetish work greeted her. Wet-look hoods with a hole only for the mouth dangled alongside gags for the revealed orifice. She pushed past the leather and PVC hangings like an adventurer carving through a dense jungle. Beyond were around ten freestanding displays. The walls beyond them were lined with exciting things she didn't know the name for. On the freestanding displays were dildos, suction devices, flashlights, and on one in particular, a panoply of bullets. Blake rushed to them and heard sudden intake of breath. Standing by the counter was her mum. She was holding up a transparent, battery-powered marital aid that glinted with internal LED lights. The final third of the device rotated at an angle with a gentle whirring. She stared at Blake, who gaped back, the small noise of the motor filling the store for a long moment. Blake, this is absolutely disgusting behaviour from you. Blake smiled as she felt the long war fade away from her, like crushing stones had been removed from her chest. She felt like she could breathe properly again. As her mum continued to try and fight for the high road, Blake simply smiled. Her mum couldn't control her anymore. The last bullet of the war had already been fired. Very nice. Nice. I like it. Mm. So, yeah, my brain went there too. I didn't end up writing that story. Interesting. It it did end up on the uh, bullet as a sex device. (laughs) Yeah. Oh I boy, I <laughs> I didn't do. <laughs> you both did that. I didn't do that. I didn't do it, so it's okay. Oh, you I, did. Uh... Oh, you didn't. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> I I can drop the concept because I didn't use it, but I had this fantastic idea about uh, two women dueling to the death with dildos oh. over oh, the last bullet on Black Friday, and I thought it's just too oh, ludicrous. Goodness. I can't write that. <laughs> that does sound fun though. That'd be yeah. funny. <laughs> Maybe we should shoot it at some point. Oh my <laughs> goodness! I would love to shoot that. <laughs> Absolutely. But, um, yeah, I really, really felt that, uh, that like, familial crushing, if you get what I'm... I try, Pressure, trying to put it yeah. in words, but that, mm. that sense of being powerless against the parent, it was, mm-hmm. it was done really nicely, especially with it being on something as intimate as your own sexuality and masturbation. It's- yeah, I mean, obviously I was having to uh, sort of put myself in, in somebody else's shoes quite a lot for that. Uh, but, it, but it, you know, we've all got stories about like almost being caught or being caught or whatever. Yeah, you know, that kind of that kind of shame that um, seems to still sort of persist in modern society when mm-hmm. really it sort of shouldn't. Um, so I don't know why I decided to die on that particular hill, but uh, that's that's where I went. Um, You're doing the so- Sky Wizards work, my man. <laughs> Certainly. And I would say as well, bold and well not bold but brave to do it as a uh, from the perspective of a young lady it's obviously there's a very different diff- yeah That's very right. different political edge to to masturbation between the sexes and it's yeah mm-hmm. i think you, you made a wise choice in making it be from that perspective even though it's not our perspective no uh, for for ben and i at least um <laughs> well one of the i i i I think it's quite obvious from the story, but it's it's set in Texas, um, which actually has uh, an obscenity statute against sex toys. No, oh, really? it's, it's a law. Yeah, it hasn't ever been repealed. I, yeah, I totally it hasn't ever. The, 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 the bit the the bit that I read out was actually is actually the the law. Wow. Good grief. And it's um, 
it hasn't really been i think i think in like 2008 or something a judge basically said that it was completely stupid to try and prosecute somebody for this after a a couple of cops went undercover to a sex toy party and <laughs> and bust and busted the woman that was selling the sex toys you know how people have like yeah makeup parties and that kind of thing they did the same thing for, for these sex toys and they busted this woman so the and they, an Ann Summers party is a bit like yeah. someone running moonshine in Texas. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Well, well, theoretically by the law, but, ba- but this was in two thousand eight, and even then the judge was like, "We can't, we can't prosecute this. This is stupid." So, so it's an odd state where the law hasn't changed yet, but no judge is willing to prosecute for it, so people don't get arrested for it. That's wild. Yeah, yeah, absolutely wild. Well, we've oh, all learned something. Goodness. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Podcast suddenly has value. <laughs> uh, oh. But uh, let's uh, should we see where you took the uh, took the prompt, Nico? It's a very different direction. <laughs> Excellent. Let's have a go. Ninety-six, ninety-five. With each metallic thud, the shack was gifted another beam of light. Thin strands of luminescence that cut through the dank gloom of their prison and sent particles of dust, dead cells from long-forgotten life-forms, dancing through it. Each impact sent a shiver of fear coursing through Samina. Seeking comfort, her eyes met those of her company sergeant. As far as she knew, the only person left alive from the thousand or so who had made Planetfall two days earlier. His lips trembled slightly as she watched him count, the numbers cascading from his lips as silent prayers. 87. 86. Zamina's mind rolled back to the first time she'd seen one of the enemy's weapons. The drill sergeant, her name had been Joel, or more often, Sir. She'd pulled back a sheet to show the enormous tool of destruction. It was far too big to be used by any human. Maybe a team of two or three if they could figure out how to grow an extra pair of fingers and triple their strength. Joe had demonstrated by placing both hands around the bar that passed for a trigger and squeezing with all her might. Many of the troops had panicked. The barrel of this monstrous rifle was pointed straight into their midst. The ones that flinched, or gods forbid, screamed, were noted. A terrible mark of shame for them. Although in the here and now, Samina would have taken kitchen duty over the hellscape that was her reality. 74. 73. They had been taught then one of the few things they knew for certain about Lifeform 374 Beta Quebec 9. Other than that their homeworld was drenched in fossil fuels and minerals that Earth's governments were willing to throw thousands of soldiers at to grasp. They'd learnt the rule of the century. Every clip they had recovered from these alien bastards held exactly 100 rounds. So count them, and for the love of God, pray you aren't being shot at by two of them. Hours of laying prone in the courtyard, listening to a recording of a hundred bullets being fired, snapping up at the right time with your weapon at the ready, it tumbled through Samina's mind. The sound of Joel's voice calling, Boom! You're dead, Harrison! Take a lap! as someone inevitably sprung up a couple of rounds early. 52. 51. 
One of the gigantic slugs of alien alloy slammed into the wall inches above Samina's head. A dry whimper creaked between her lips as it plopped and pinged dramatically off of her helmet. The weight of it came almost as a shock. They'd all had a chance to inspect captured alien munitions before, but actually having them come at you at speed? Hell, that was a different game entirely. Company Sergeant Mendoza continued his furious countdown, seemingly oblivious to the world around him. The shack had been a snap decision. Samina had seen a structure and broken for it. This thing was four walls, and there its similarities to human buildings ended. Putting her back against its huge door and sliding it shut had sent rivulets of sweat running from her brow and left her knees feeling like they would collapse. She'd been shocked to find the sergeant in here. Her arm and eyes initially believed him to have already been ripped from life by their enemies. But his muttering had become apparent when she joined him behind the one piece of workable cover in the hut. When the firing had started, she knew for certain that the monster following her had not, as she had hoped, gotten lost in the mist, but instead had tracked her somehow. Each thud and clunk was a harsh reminder. This is our world, not yours. 40. 39. Samina had joined up, for, she was beginning to realise, all the wrong reasons. So many of her compatriots wanted to kill alien bastards, claim what was rightfully humanities, get into God's good fight. Samina wanted to get away from home, away from her piece of shit father. 3,786 light years seemed like just about enough distance between her and her father's coarse hands. And by the time she'd been unfrozen after the jump, time dilation would have meant the prick was dead anyway. Her cheekbones stung in the now. The thud of the bullets landing, sending fiery recollections of her father's strikes through her. When they'd landed, and the firefight had begun in earnest she had not been able to summon the zeal that many of the soldiers around her had. That righteous fury that had held their fingers wrapped tight around triggers, even as gargantuan monsters had obliterated them while they stood. So she had run, as hard and as fast as her legs would carry her. The fine red vapour that had once been members of her unit coated her until she was slick and crimson. Only the clear streaks her tears left showing her human flesh goose-pimpled and quivering. Twenty. Nineteen. The sergeant was absentmindedly loading his pistol. She watched the clip slide in. His eyes were still fixed on some point in space. Perhaps he saw his home, or he was painting a mental picture of the firing range on which they had trained. Eighteen feet of plywood with a target on its chest seemed like an easy job to the trainees. They joked about these huge fuckers being almost impossible to miss. None of them had seen one alive before Planetfall. Sure, they'd seen various parts of them floating in vats. They'd even had the chance to watch Dr. Willis take one apart. Its blood was thick and hissed when it met the oxygen-rich atmosphere. Samina remembered its twin hearts. One in the chest, one in the hips. Each with an accompanying brain. Making three, including the head... We'll be too big to live otherwise, the good doctor had said. It'd make it easier to blow its fucking brains out, the soldiers had said. 
in reality, it made them bigger. Faster. Twelve. Eleven. Samina thought about her mother, her soft, sweet singing voice that had, in times long past, been the warm wind in the glittering dreamland that lay between waking and sleep. Samina had been so very young when she had been taken away. Her father said it was by Allah. She was pretty sure it was by his unforgiving fists. She had become his vent then. His anger had painted her soft skin purple and blue, not that anyone would have known underneath her traditional garb. Taking that off and donning a uniform had been her first step to freedom. And it appeared death on a cold, lonely, inhabited alien planet. Still, better here than in some squalid apartment crushed by heat and her father's rage. Right? Two. One. Mendoza seemed to mechanically swing to his feet, the word one flushing him with life. Samina didn't have time to call out, to grab him. This was a common fault among the soldiers she trained with. You don't go on one. A cascade of glittering gore burst dramatically from where the sergeant's head had been seconds before. Like a firework filled with memories, his brain burst as a bullet the size of his fist punched its way through. The body that remained took a moment to realise it was dead, before slumping to the ground, pouring what was left of him across the floor in a sticky wave. Zero. Samina lay in the pool of blood as it became tacky. Too tired to be afraid and too weak to even cry. Wondering for the first time about one thing they hadn't been taught. How long do they take to reload? Wow. I I like that one too. I find it interesting that when you say traditional garb, would there was like a religious connotation of that? Is that what you meant? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I find that you both you both kind of use that in your stories too. Yeah. True. Yeah. Yeah. Must be something going on there. <laughs> It's almost like we we link religion and war in some ways. <laughs> oh, I really enjoyed the device yeah. of counting down through the story. I know it built suspense. That, I like that. It was a, yeah, it was really good at building the suspense. I'm um, glad it worked because that's where it started. <laughs> I thought I really yeah. want to count down the bullets, but how do you how do you fit that around a story? So I'm glad that it glad that it went. I also felt that it hung together nicely as a. Uh, as a piece of science fiction as well, like or like you know, uh, like softish science fiction, it quite similar to actually to um, my first story from the podcast, I think. Yeah, I where would they agree. where the humans have gone somewhere to get the resources and, um, but from a very different angle, uh, general down to grunt. Um, but I, I I really like that. I think the had like a really sort of I could almost taste the gore. I think like the. There must have been like twelve different descriptions of <laughs> just horrible bits things. Of people, yeah. yeah. Um, I think I um, so I had two main things I was listening to while I wrote, which were the Starship Troopers soundtrack. I was yeah yeah I was just about and, to mention Starship uh, Troopers, District Nine, and I mm. I think list, like loving both of those movies. I think a lot of it comes down to I really like it when it's not 
we've gone there and we're going to win because humanity is the best. It's so much more compelling when humans get somewhere and go, oh, those are big. Mm. Oh, no. I, I was definitely getting a bit of a uh, Joe Haldeman Forever War vibe as well. Oh, I'll take that compliment. Yeah. Just um, just like with the nature of the technology and not being prepared for the foe that you've been sent to meet. Yeah. Yeah, because at least the first one is entirely about, well, not entirely, but partially about the, how time dilation affects military advance. Yeah. So you, you you might set off and you're the biggest you're the biggest gun in the sky, but by the time you arrive, you're 20 years behind. Yeah. Um, which is a really cool concept. I've always liked it. So I, I liked the hints of it in this one. I think. Yeah, very good story. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that makes it time. To have someone who's clearly not as unhinged as we are tell a story. Oh, I... <laughs> Anyone who's been listening across these is going to be terrified of us by the end. Well, no, mine is now. Um, this is a huge change because mine, I think, is pretty boring compared to those two. I, um... Don't say that. Don't say that. It's no, I don't all... believe it. I refuse to believe. Yeah, it. I, I absolutely do not oh. believe it. Well, it's and... um, it's not sci-fi or anything kind of like that at all. I interpreted Bullet as being more of an abstract thing in this one, so it's not like a. It's it's almost well, I am just about to read it, so let me you pull it up. You don't Here need to go. prove that you're a writer and we're not before you've even started. <laughs> abstract concepts. What do you? Uh, bullets are bullets. I can't. I can't even. Well, spell it one. wasn't like I had. <laughs> it was. It's more. It is com- the complete opposite of what we just heard. Let me say. Oh boy, this is. All right, let me see if I can follow that. This is called... We love a tone shift. Let's have it. (laughs) Let's go for it. This is called Butterfly Touchdown 2002. Everything I ever needed to know about life, I learned from Eastern sacred texts, most notably rebirth, repurpose, five-cent returns from one room to the next. Four years ago, when I was an adjunct at Columbia, I worked up the gumption to finally talk to Dory after a week of eyeing her in the staff lounge of the classical studies department every morning. Four years later, I stood cradling the phone in my hand, recycled butterflies fluttering under my skin, hoping she wouldn't pick up while also praying that she would. The longer you wait, the worse it gets, buddy. Kenny hunched over on the couch, shoveled chips into his mouth as he eyed the TV screen. The game was tied, and all it would take was one winning touchdown to seal the deal. He could have either been talking about the loaded gun half of America was sitting on, or what I was about to do. Even though he's ten years my senior, we have been friends since my undergrad bartending days, when he, a regular at the bar and self-appointed dating expert, would give me often solicited and sometimes helpful tips. Those were the same words he had said to me when I was first contemplating introducing myself to Dory. And now, as those first-time feelings slowly overwhelmed me, they applied more than ever. Yep, I said, the receiver growing sweaty in my grip. Eventually, I disassociated enough to press the digits, which were burned into me like wood marking, knowing that if I thought about it, I'd get nervous and accidentally dial the wrong number. I don't even know what I'd say. Small talk would feel disingenuous when we had passed enough big talk between each other to fill a novel. Perhaps I would talk about the game, which I'm sure Dory was watching, though neither she nor I had a real reason to root for the Patriots or the Rams. Like most people in New York City, we were dropped into it from our respective UFOs. She from the West Coast and I from the Deep South. We made Manhattan our home, and for a while, made a home with each other, 
at least we tried to, until the rent in Happily Ever After got too high. The last time I saw her was months ago, soon after the nation had sat vigil by the TV for a very different reason. And she came by when some of the rubble and shock had been cleared. It's funny, she had said, with the ease of someone playing an icebreaker game. We sat across from each other by the window, both nursing cups of tea. The sight of her in my living room again was welcome, but slightly obtrusive, like that of a piece of new furniture still in its box that hadn't yet been set up. What's funny? That this is what it took for us to be in the same room again. She cupped her hand to her over-pierced ear and tilted her head towards the window, listening to the new soundtrack to Life in the City, a cleanup crew picking up the ruins. Well, it took a little more than that, I murmured. It had, in fact taken three long-winded voicemails, one a frantic message left on the day that made the world stand still. Even in our early days, it was mostly I who had to pull the first strings, and now was no different. But I kept quiet. She shuffled in the armchair she was sitting in, as if wriggling from the grasp of something unwanted. Give it another year or so, she fussed with a smiley face pin, one of many on her corduroy jacket. I'm telling you, someone is going to be cashing in on this for a movie or a book. Someone always does. I mean, that's generally what happens when history is made, Dory. No, I don't mean, like, documentaries and stuff. I'm talking about people who go out of their way to make this kind of thing into a love story. It's a little gross, if you think about it. Don't they have anything else to make them feel something? Maybe they don't, I shrugged, hoping we could talk about something else. It seemed that Dory did, too because she looked away and stroked the small stuffed owl on her purse keychain, which she'd seemingly had forever. Old owl, I smiled, feeling old warmth creeping in again. I remember that guy. Oh, him, yeah. She played with the little toy like a shy child. I took him off for a while when I got a new purse and lost him, but then found him again. Just felt like turning to old stuff for comfort. Like? I tried to coax out of her what I hoped the answer would be. Over the years, she had given me plenty to turn to for comfort, shared days and nights now residing in the recesses of my brain. I waited for her response, hoping we had joint custody of my nostalgia. My parents' old Victrola dug it out for my nephew. Did you? My smile was still on, biting on my disappointment. What did he think? You should have seen the minute he finally learned how to work it. His eyes just lit up. She shook her head from side to side, then leaned in as if she was admitting a shameful secret. You know, my father saw this girl and her mom come in while he was on duty at the post office the other day. She wasn't that little, maybe eight or nine, but still, she didn't know how to put on a stamp. Pretty soon, we're going to have a whole generation that won't know how to mail a letter. Never going to know what it was like to pay for stamps or walk 20 minutes to the mailbox. Kids don't know sacrifice, I said, hearing my own voice bounce off the walls of the room. That is true. You know what does know sacrifice? Trees. What? If it weren't for those poor bastards, we'd be stupid and dead. Think about it. We live on their ashes, breathing in what they breathe out. Lined paper. Yellow paper. Paper rotting at the bottom of a bag. Paper coasting across mountains and oceans, telling people what God says, what man says, spinning the earth like this, I babbled, spinning an imaginary basketball on my finger. Are you high? No, I'm just right, I spat out, thinking of all the letters I had written to her after she moved out, all the trees that had died in vain so I could try to save what no longer had a pulse. Our relationship had been on hospice long before that. 
Anything physical that I gave her was met with a catatonic shiver, and anything verbal was met with dead air or a recording of something sweet. Whose fault was it? I'd like to think it was times. She wasn't wrong about kids and sacrifice. And that's what I had been back then. A kid. One of the main hallmarks of being fully grown is learning to love from a scale instead of a seesaw. In this area, she had always been an adult. She learned it way before I did, possibly as a teenager, digging out her parents' Victrola, putting on some classic album. What would she have listened to? Knowing her funky, cerebral self that had drawn me in, maybe blonde on blonde, closing her eyes to the music and imagining the future, asking Dylan what making love just like a woman really meant. Little did she know that she would try every way she knew how, claiming to be too full to eat the last slice of pizza, taking the time to clean double plates, double clothes, double rooms, pretending for my sake not to want the baby who kicked her only in her dreams, agreeing not to move from our apartment and to catch two trains every day to the new job she had taken after Columbia so I could still walk two blocks a week to work, swearing up and down that the crescent was enough when she craved the whole moon. Anyway, I, uh, I thought, I said softly, with my head down, that we could try again. Is that why you brought me here? You mean dragged you here? Stop martyring yourself. You've been martyr of the year since 1998. The words flew out before I could stop them, and she looked at me with incredulous eyes. I had every right. Now I don't have the energy to give or receive. I do. To give or receive. Don't play this game, I snapped and immediately hated myself for it. She bristled, the way she often did when we went down this road, radiating glacial anger, and I softened. We need to try again. My tone was quietly desperate, which horrified me. We don't need anything. You want to see people in need? Turn on the TV. Look out the window. People are in need every day, all the time, Dory, of different things. You're not a big picture person, and I've never liked that about you. She had meant it as a statement of fact but it hurt like an arrow. Yes, it felt greedy and wrong, disgusting even, to want for anything at all when whole neighborhoods were still choking on dust and whole families were torn apart by a perverted ideology. But I couldn't see past my own nose. That had been my problem all along. Like a lot of our conversations, this one ended in profanity ping pong. But at this present moment, watching the game and holding the phone to my ear in giddy fear, I knew I could give it another shot. 21 seconds, let's go! Kenny was sitting impossibly still, but the apartment shook with his impatience. The clock was bleeding out in the stands and in millions of homes, lungs paused in suspense. Eyes forgot to blink, hearts worked overtime. Somewhere, a neurotic holy trinity was forming, I being taunted by the dial tone, she possibly lost in the national freeze-flash mob that connected all of us whether we liked it or not, and a young player behind a helmet itching to make or break this cold February night with the pigskin in his hand, the last bullet gearing up to leave a trail into tomorrow. Oh, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, I was so... The thing is, I had... This had been a completely different story before. It was going to be much longer. I don't usually write flash fiction, but I decided... Right. And I, I was running out of time because of this podcast. I was like, oh, I only have a week. I just trashed the old one. And I completely... I took an old story that I had done and, yeah. like, reworked it. So this is... It, it's not perfect. And I'm really perfectionistic about my stuff. So I was, like, kind of annoyed about it. But... <laughs> 
I'm glad I don't you think you should. It. I don't think you should be annoyed at all. There were some <laughs> wonderful turns of phrases in there. I, I particularly enjoyed uh, joint custody of my nostalgia. Yeah. Like I feel like I've been in that room. Well, thank you. It was a uh, a wonderful American perspective as well. We can't write that really. We've both both of us have written stories that are set in America at different points already in the podcast. But we we wouldn't think to write, you know, you know, the importance of a an NFL game wouldn't shine through for yeah. us, and how much effect <laughs> that would be having emotionally. Yeah. But to the story, it was so important, and it made me feel what they were feeling, even though I can't do that normally. And that yeah. for me really really worked. Yeah, especially that and the fact well, this game in particular. I mean, it was it was post nine eleven, and this was actually quite difficult for me to write because I was just a little kid at the time of nine yeah. eleven and this game. So I don't have that adult perspective of it. Like I didn't understand the significance. So it was very. It was kind of difficult for me to like kind of get into an adult skin looking at the issue, and I kind of so that's. I mean, it was it was not that easy for me to write for that reason, but. It did not appear oh, strenuous you. at all when you were saying it. So no, you did, you did a good you. job. Thank you. Thank you very much. It flowed very well. Yeah. Thank you. I uh, I did also like the the mini meta critique of your own story that was buried <laughs> in it. Oh yeah, like the ironic thing saying people turning it into a love story. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't yeah. personally like it when people like romanticize tragedies or stuff. So I was kind of making it. I was kind of satirizing that, like within the story, mm. making it. It's not a super duper sappy story either. So I was kind of, in a way, both critiquing it and also kind of like making it so it wouldn't be that. Okay. I think as well, super bold to write about, you know, nine eleven and the effect it had on people. It's not something we can really do. Because, you know, obviously there was an effect across the pond and we did feel that. Yeah. But it will never have the same impact that it had on the States. Mm-hmm. So I think having someone who can write about America in that way is, is absolutely fantastic for mm. us because oh, thank you. we just don't get that perspective. And thank you for being mm. willing to write about something so raw and so Definitely. still obviously painful for America. No problem. You don't, do you get many Americans on this show? You're our first. Oh no, my goodness! Yet. Wow. No, very first. Wow. First, first American first story about 9/11. That was. Oh my goodness. It was, it was perfect. Well, I actually um, went to Ground Zero relatively recently yeah. and was just. It, I felt like I'd been punched in the face with the emotion of it. It's yeah. So brutally sad. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, I've never been there, and again, like I was wondering I, if I could, you know, thinking maybe we can it can draw parallels to almost coronavirus as well in a weird way because the juxtaposition of like wanting you know the selfishness also the character goes through of wanting to get back together and like wanting her so badly when there are people out there who like want much more like what much bigger things and people i was they thinking, can't get back yeah yeah but it's like i was thinking of that like even in my everyday life now like there are things i want now that i can't get now and i'm like uh but i realize there's much worse things going on outside right now mm-hmm. i mean i think it could also it's almost a timeless um sort of story in a way because like it can kind of relate yeah. to someone reading it now well, yeah, speaking please. of things that you want, I'm going to try and lift Ooh. the mood a bit. <laughs> <laughs> because otherwise, we, we keep ending up with bleak bits in our podcast. I suppose that's quite good. But, I, think um, it, I think it's real. There you go. You, uh, you have just written a pilot for TV. Yes. Yes, I'm I have. I'm to understand. 
Uh huh. Yeah, I I did write a pilot, and um, we would like to make the rest of the episodes, but we kind of can't because of COVID. And also, because what we were hoping to do is give the pilot to a network and hopefully get the funding from them. So, but that's kind of on hold right now. But yes, I did write a pilot. The rules are all changed, aren't they? For for everything, not just TV, for film and for music. And right. If you if you wrote something by february this year it's probably not going to do the thing you were hoping it to do by october this year (laughs) it's unfortunate (laughs) it has slowed a lot of things down but you are also i believe so that was uh one plus one is two yes tv pilot right Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about it yes are we allowed to know oh yes you are allowed to know it's um a it was based off a stage play i wrote as a teenager and we just adapted it for the screen the original story had taken place in 1968 um, in Massachusetts, where I'm from. And the main character had been a woman, I'm, I have to stress, she's a fictional character. Some people think she's a real historical figure, but she's not. I made her up. Her name is Marielle Morin. And she, in 1968, she's 28 years old. She is a housewife. She's got a husband and a young daughter. And um, she also has a learning disability, which back then they could not diagnose or um, give any kind yeah. of help for. And so um, today you would call her dyslexic. And actually in the in the show, which is set in modern day, um, she already she's had the, she already had the diagnosis, albeit very, very late. But um, in the in the in the 60s, when she was a young adult, um, she obviously didn't have any kind of help for it. And then when she was a kid in the 40s and 50s, she had to drop out of school and just go straight into the job, uh, the workforce. She bagged groceries for a while. And um, but now in 68, it was um, this was kind of the be- I wouldn't say it was the beginning, but this was when um, the disability rights movement kind of really started picking up because only one in five kids with a disability could go to school back then. And the, the other four um, were just, you know, Crikey, they were so low. Yeah. One in <laughs> five. Exceptionally low. Yeah. And, um, but, and the, and the kids who were allowed to go were just not treated well. They were kind of segregated from the rest of the student body. So um, things weren't quite, I mean, and today there's still issues like that, but it, it was worse back then. And um, so she and a bunch of other parents um, of special needs kids, they get together, they make a grassroots movement, they do rallies, they do protests to kind of improve and increase um, access to public education for these children. But um, her motive, she is a benevolent person. She does want to help, but part of it is for her own gain, because part of it is to avenge the way she was treated as a child. Like, she was like ridiculed by her family. She was ridiculed by, you know, other kids growing up. And so it's almost like she wants to be on top now. And she becomes so obsessed with that, that she starts to alienate everybody else. You know, her relationships with her family suffers. Her relationships with her friends start to suffer. And it's almost a look at what happens when an activist is not an entirely sympathetic person. Mm. And um, now that was the original story, but um, we had, when we adapted it, we knew it's very expensive to shoot an all period piece you know you got to get old cars or old clothes and stuff but yeah, yeah. um so we said it modern day but we had flashbacks to the past to lessen the financial burden on us and um we adapted the story that way now um it takes place in 2018 that's when it was written and um she uh, is 78 by that point and she's a grandmother, great grandmother. She has this whole legacy and career behind her. So her husband and her now grown daughter are writing a biography of her. 
and now when you're writing a biography of someone, that's a messy process because you know you got to write about the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? And especially when you're mm. writing about a parent, your own parent, there's a lot of you know, hey mom, you did this to me. Oh no, it wasn't like that. You're remembering it wrong. <laughs> I did the best I could. Like no, well you were kind of were really naughty at times, and you deserve this. But no, I did, and it's like. It kind it's of... nothing quite like being gaslit by your parents. <laughs> I find. Oh, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in the show, but there's some gaslighting from the kids too. And parenting is um, is it really? It's the the bread and butter of the show. Like that's the main topic, and it's not just her family it focuses on. It focuses on her daughter's family and like the issues there, and then like um, like the her friends' family and the issues there. And it's more like how kids. It examines like how parents are not perfect people and how they can make mistakes and how children can make mistakes and how people are doomed for better or for worse to somehow like turn into their parents and it, it's just it doesn't really and it, it, it's unique for that reason it's also unique because it it focuses on a character with a disability but it doesn't just focus on the disability like honestly she struggles more with things that are not her dyslexia mm -hmm. like she she struggles with you know with parenthood, with being a, a, a wife, with being a friend, like all those are at the forefront. So I think it's a unique show. It sounds exactly like the kind of show that I would watch. Like, well, great. Delicious, I... deliciously involved, you know, like historical context, it's everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully we can make the rest so you guys can watch it. I have, I, yeah. do, I do have an Indiegogo, but, um, which I'm, I'm not we'll allowed to. We'll pop some links for that for you. When we oh, uh, when this comes you. out, we'll pop some on Twitter and we'll stick them in the description as well. So wherever you're listening to this, you will be able to find a link to e that. Excellent. Well. Great. And Thank you. not just that Indiegogo, but there is a Patreon, I believe. For a different for show. a web series that I think is, uh, this is even more geared at us, Ben. <laughs> uh, you have a web series called Sandbox Police. Well, yes, Sandbox Police. It's a it's very different from 1 plus 1, it's 2. It's a comedy and it's filmed entirely on Zoom. Oh, nice yeah yeah we got to my friends and i we want to do something during quarantine and the original show had been written to be live action but we um obviously can't do that so the original premise had been it's just three kids on a college radio show and um the hijinks and shenanigans they get into there but it's um for for covid times we adapted it the story so that now it's the three kids have graduated and now they're all living in different places but they're continuing the show in a podcast form. Oh, nice. it's, the, it's a shame they've graduated. I was going to say, if you want any uh, foreign exchange <laughs> students, Ben and I are available. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> we do take other, um, we do have other, we have like guests on the show who play characters. So if you want to like play an old friend or something like <laughs> who, who, who was a foreign exchange student when they were in college, like we're, you know, that'd be great. I'll, I'll write one in. I, d I know Ben may be less confident with it, but I'll happily be American as well. I want to see if I can pass under yeah, the radar. Yeah, you did a, you did I, a I good American accent. American. In your story, you did a good American accent. <laughs> it's all right. It depends where I want to be from. But yeah, that's for right. For the most part, it's, it's okay. <laughs> just I, I love to do this to people. Just drop in and then not come out. I used to... I, I mean, this is a, probably a bad thing to admit on record. Oh my but gosh, I would, you're really good. <laughs> I would meet people and I would say, no, I'm visiting from the States. Wow, it is and pretty then, convincing. When when they spoke to me, I'd say, "Yeah, you know, I'm over here for a little while. I'm having a good time." And then I'd say, "I've been practicing an English accent. You want to hear it?" Oh my goodness! <laughs> and then when they say, "Yeah," I would drop into my own voice. Oh my goodness! Wow! And every single time, I'd say, "So, hello, my name's uh, Nico, and I'm English." Wow! Say so it's not bad, but like... you need to work on how you say "w." Say, like, "No, I don't." <laughs> That's absolutely wow. That's like. 
that's like Hugh Laurie levels of like being good at an American accent. That's pretty good. Yes. <laughs> unfortunately, oh, unfortunately, when I try and when I try and do it, people just hear the crumpets and oh the tea being God. poured. It's uh, they they can hear the tea being thrown into the ocean as you begin oh to speak. <laughs> I wonder. That's, that's, if, yes. I wonder if it's more difficult for for English people to do an American accent or vice versa. I feel like it must be more difficult for the English to do an American accent because you got to make the R sound like. So now here's the Rather thing. Than deleting it, yeah. You guys would have a much harder time, I think, because there are so many dialects crammed That's into our right. tiny island. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, most Americans, if asked, can you do an English accent, they will respond with something from Harry Potter. That's the normal go-to. Which is sort of received pronunciation, so that, yeah. is, that is fine. Or <laughs> now, it's uh, mostly people talking like uh, King George yeah. from Hamilton. Oh, <laughs> really? That's the- You'll be Beck. The Beck is in. Right. You're too fun to talk to, Sharice. We're not doing questions. This is. You're, you're a wonderful guest so far, I have well, to say. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I like this podcast a lot. It's been fun. It's dumb as hell, and we like it that way. <laughs> so I suppose we should ask you some actual questions. Okay. We've heard about your writing, mm-hmm. but what are you reading at the moment? Oh my gosh. I'm always like, I pick up like 10 books at a time and I like forget about them and I like move on (laughs) and I forget about them. But I, um, what did I just finish? Um, usually I do read a lot of short stories naturally because I write them, you know, people like Jhumpa Lahiri or TC Boyle or, you know, people like Haruki Murakami. I, you know, I've, I've, I read their stuff and some of that. Oh man. Kind I of love in- Haruki Marikami. Yeah. So so good. I started reading Men Without Women and like I sadly didn't get to finish it. I'm the type of person who like I walk into a bookstore and then like I hang around just read, but I let like I I don't come out. But I didn't but I, I really I like what I've read of him. And um what did I just finished reading. I do read like longer fiction novels too. I finished reading um a book called I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called The Lot. It's the Lost Book of Adana Moreau. That's a that's a pretty good book. I recommend it. It's kind of more sci-fi, which is kind of not what I usually read. But I did. It's 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 like it's not so sci-fi that I would put it down and be like, this is just too crazy. Like it did have a lot of real life elements in it too. That's oh, I didn't know book. I was going to offend you with my story. No, 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 no. <laughs> I liked yours a lot, but yeah, normally the kind of stuff I write is more it's not that out there and crazy. I don't know why, like, I don't, I, it's just for some reason, I feel like I, that's what I gravitate to. I'm not sure why, like, I was thinking, you know, even as a kid, like, the kind of imaginative play that I had was, like, it wasn't, like, monsters and stuff. It was more like, you know, I'm the mom and, like, my friend is the baby, but it was always, like, some really, like, convoluted storyline of, like, the dad, like, ran away and, like, got another mom and, like, there's a boyfriend, like all this crazy family dramas. It was like even for that, okay. it was like. Do you, do you so... have uh, Jacqueline Wilson in the states, or is that a, is that just a UK thing? I've never heard of her. Probably is no. A UK that thing. she she writes exclusively that, those kind of stories, and they there's a certain age group for uh, it, mostly mostly girls, I think, but mm-hmm. yeah. I assume some guys do read them um, that are just devour these like familial dramas about how the dad drinks and hits the mum. Yeah, and, and, I. It, it, it's quite disturbing in a way. Well, there's a st- absolutely brilliant one called The Illustrated Mum, and it's about mm-hmm. a little girl who lives with her mum, and they're always moving around, and yeah. they stay in uh, B&Bs, which are like British motels. Yeah. And they, um, she doesn't really understand her mum, but it's because her mum's uh, paranoid schizophrenic. Ah. 
and mm. you don't really know that as a child but exactly, yeah. looking back on the text it's so sort of cleverly woven into the story in a way that it mm. it is from a child's perspective i think that's her gift jacqueline wilson she yeah. writes from the perspective of a sort of uh like early pubescent girl mm-hmm. mm. so like 12 like between 9 and 14 that kind of like through that lens and I, I've read a few. I've got little sisters, and sometimes I'm bored, and I pick yeah. up a book, and I, yeah, yeah. Ooh, I wonder what this one's like. And th- they've always been good. I've never thought, oh god, I can't believe this is dross. You, you do sort of find that you'll you'll sort of go into somebody's house or whatever, and you'll see on the bookshelf there'll be thirty of these things. Yes, yeah. and it's and you know exactly exactly the kind of person that's been reading those books. Um, I'd which also, is, if you want to, if, if you, anyone American, but I'm going to especially recommend it to you. Okay. Look up a show called Tracy Beaker. It's uh, it's based familiar. on it's based like on one of her books. Okay, but it's the most like middle class English thing you can possibly imagine, oh. yeah, and I can imagine it for an American being the most bizarre. <laughs> it's basically sci fi for you. Like there is no thing that is the same. It's pretty in America. Mm-hmm. It's it's super wild, and it'd be uh, interesting to hear. Just, uh, yeah, just jumping back to your uh, your foray into bookshops, I'm just trying to think of bookshops that I've been to in Boston. Do you wear the Trident one? Yes, Trident I am. And actually, yes. a copy of the stage play of One Plus One Is Two is there. I like, gave it to them on consignment a while ago, and I'm sure nobody's bought it. But that's oh, why I'm familiar you, that's with so it. So cool. <laughs> yeah, they, um, they had a they had a fire last year, I think. Didn't they? I, I, I think was it I flooding heard or something? That. Yeah, I yeah. I think it was like a cooking because they're they're a cafe too. I'm sure it was like a yes. like a toaster or something that went. Hate wire, but like <laughs> it was it was so incredibly civilized when I went there because we have sort of cafes inside bookshops in the UK, mm-hmm. but they're not as integrated as they are there. Um, I just thought it was lovely that you could just pick something up and sit down and read it whilst eating, and then just God, put it back. You could never do that here. You just couldn't do it. Like absolutely <laughs> no. not. Yeah, um, it's really popular here. Yeah, I feel like it's hard to find one where I feel like you'd be hard pressed to find one that doesn't have some sort of, you know, place where you can get refreshments. One of the libraries near me, not in my town, but the next town over, like well, the public library has a cafe in it. I was like, wow. <laughs> we cool. don't wow. have many libraries left. Yeah, they, they are dying okay. over here, unfortunately. And uh, you will hear that phrase. If you were to sit and read a book in a bookshop, you would probably be asked, do you think this is a library? Are you going to buy that? <laughs> yeah, oh, so yeah I suppose I better had. Oh, yeah. So off uh, off the back of that, what is the best book you've ever read? It's, oh, it's particularly hard. This question, so enjoy. Oh no! Don't do that. I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, that's really. I, I feel like it. Oh, damn it! Wow. That's not. No like, one wants to betray the books. They yeah. don't. They really don't. I don't know if it's the best book I've ever read. I can think of, like, some of the best... Um, I, I feel like there'd be different categories of that. Like, I feel that some... Oh, my God. Like, some of my favorite short stories. Man, I really like... Well, in terms of... I'm just going to, like, dissect my different categories. I think that as an autobiography, for example, I really, really like uh, Maya Angelou's. I um, I know why the cage bird sings. I know it's a classic, but just the prose. I personally, I'm, I'm thinking I'm in the minority of people. I think she's a way better prose writer than a poet. That's just me. Right. But and just it's just it's a combination of like her history and her like almost 
magical prose and way of writing stuff. That's something I really enjoyed. I also remember as a kid, I'm trying to think of what has influenced me. And I really, in terms of poetry, someone whose work I really enjoy is Yusuf Kamanyaka. I believe he teaches at NYU, I think. Um, he, I, his poetry is out of this world. I really also liked um, what I've read of Jim Carroll, what he wrote at like the age of 16, like that stuff. You're like, wow, this guy was 16 when he wrote this. And um, things of- It's always painful, isn't it? When somebody's so talented, so young. Yes, yes it is, <laughs> yes. And, um, oh my gosh. Um, man, I'm trying to think of like short stories and some people who I really like for their prose. Da, 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 da. I'm trying to think of a book that, one book that influenced something I wrote remember when I was 15, I picked up in one of my English classrooms. It was a book called Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. And it was, I remember like just the opening like paragraphs and stuff and just the way it was written and the way she described stuff. And it was just so, I don't know. It was something, I feel like a good, the best writing I've ever read for me and I can't pick one author. That's why I'm listing random people. But I think the best writing for <laughs> me is one that is writing that makes me feel almost depressed not because of subject matter but because I could never create something like that like some writing you read and you like the story and you go oh but you know I could have done that and then you read some that go make you go like yeah I could have never created something like that Mm. and that for me I think that's that that's what makes it the best because it challenges me like I read stuff that I like that doesn't necessarily challenge me to to do better as a writer but certain things you read and you're like yeah like this is what I want to be maybe i can't time to raise the bar yeah exactly if it makes you raise the bar i think if it challenges you and makes you raise the bar i think then that's good and some of the best Mm. have been like authors that i've i've mentioned like um just a few minutes ago and i've read so it's um sometimes i will read the classic i mean in terms of classic short stories you know things like anton Chekhov's short stories again i um there's Mm. some of them that i really enjoy and i and that are emotionally really profound the student is one of my favorite ones um you know, for example, and I really, yeah, that's, um, but yeah, I could go into like different genres of books and what are my favorites <laughs> from those. Like I read a lot of like, I, for nonfiction, I don't read a ton of that. I do read things that have to do with music a lot, like, um, oh, really? like musician autobiographies and stuff. I really like, for example, um, what did I like? I liked Testimony by Robbie Robertson. That was a good one. Um, I, I didn't get to finish it, but I liked it a lot. And what was another one? Uh, blah, blah, blah. I was I was listening to Graham Nash's Wild Tales on audiobooks. That's one I I liked as well. Again, and it's that's um I don't know. I mean, I I'm just a big music geek, and music shapes how I write a lot. So that's fascinating. Yeah. So we've talked about you raising the bar. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna lower the bar now. The bar oh. is going all the way down. It's limbo time. You might what? find this one hard. I'm really interested to know if you find this easier or harder. What's the worst book you've ever read? Oh, God. Actually, that's... um, I don't... I, I, You know, it's funny because I feel like I almost go out of my way to, like, avoid something that I can tell is going to be, <laughs> like, a story that I'm not going <laughs> to like. So, in terms of writing, um, I don't know. I, I feel like I've read some fan fiction <laughs> online that's been, like, uh... Oh man! Now we're talking. <laughs> uh, but um, no, I I'm guilty of writing. You know, you know, I I was like 15, 14. I I wrote some crazy fanfic too, so I'm not gonna pass judgment on people. But like, I've read um, I I once 
read a what was it well i mean i'm sure a lot of people would say this like the 50 shades of gray books like i wasn't reading them for enjoyment i was reading them to <laughs> like because everybody was saying it's so bad and i'm like really like when people say it's so bad like makes me want to read it and i was like yeah they're right <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it wasn't even like it just the, the the level of the writing and someone who you clearly like clearly like would benefit from a thesaurus like someone who says the word crap like 80 times on a page <laughs> it's like you know you kind of need a thesaurus there it's your friend but um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a oh, worst book ever. Um, I don't know. I, I really, that, that, I'd say Fifty Shades of Grey, pretty much anything that's, I don't really, I'm trying to think, there's certain stories I've read that, like, I've picked up a book, like, you know, maybe at the doctor's office or something lying around, and I've, like, quit because it just seems so exaggerated, like, a story that's almost really, really dark when there's no complexity, like, you, you mentioned, um, you said Jacqueline Wilson. I haven't read her, but she's, I'll, I'll check her out. But when you said like extremely dark stories about like a dad drinking and like hitting a mom and stuff, I feel like I tend to, I do write about family trauma, but I tend to avoid making it go that, like be that polarizing. Cause I feel like writing about, for example, writing a story where like people hate each other all the time, a hundred percent of the time just seems like taking the easy way out for me a little bit. Like yeah. I feel like it's, for example, I wrote, and I should have given you links to it, and I forgot. I have a bunch of short stories that have been published, and um, a lot That's of okay. them... That's okay. You can give us the links uh, later on, and we can yeah, put them, up. We'll put I them will. out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and the, a lot of um, stories um, have been published through um, a newspaper called the Armenian Weekly, which is um, is based, you know, very... It's, it's an, an international newspaper. It's mainly for, like, you know, um, written by Armenians for you don't have to be Armenian to read it but it's mostly no. um, things um, of that interest and they have a fiction section which I pretty much own now because nobody like really <laughs> submits to it <laughs> they submit to the poetry oh, one nice. but not to the fiction one and um, I have a lot of stories on that and like for example I wrote one story my first story that was published there I, it was funny I'd written it when I was 20 and it took three years to find a home because I just got rejection after rejection after rejection and it sucked but um this one I wrote because I was listening to the song um Sweet Judy Blue Eyes by Crosby Stills and Nash which if you don't know that's about what Stephen Stills had with Judy Collins and the reason why that story I guess inspired uh, the reason why that song inspired my story is because it was about a couple who you know still wanted to be together but they were splitting up, but you it's not that they hate, I feel like, again, it would have been taking the easy way out if it had been like, I hate you so much, I'm leaving you, da da da. But it's, they wanted to be together. And the one line that I think did it for me was like, this does not mean I don't love you. I do, that's forever, this and for always. You know, and it's like, that's, I put that in my story a little bit. The story was that like, it was the last vacation a family takes together before the parents divorce. Mm. And because the mother's struggle with mental illness was like taking a toll on him. And it's told from the perspective of a child. Well, she's an adult now, but she's looking back to when she was a child. And you can feel, I wonder about the love between them more than like the strife between them. So it was more bittersweet than just a plain old, like, ah, you suck, I'm leaving you. Like, I feel like I like writing things like that, and I like reading things like that. I don't know, I feel I was, like... I was just yeah. about to ask you, actually, the because because the, the way that you've... Because that's two things now, where it's somebody looking back on their life. Yeah. And I'm wondering, do you have a... This is actually one of the next questions, which is, do you have, like, a favourite literary character that this is sort of summed up by or <sighs> inspired you? You know, and that's tough because I feel like there are certain, 
characters that like they're all there like every I feel like everything I write is piece of everything I've read and again I but I feel like most of them honestly I have to say the music I think shapes me more than actual literature that uh, bottom line I mean a lot of what I write is based off of um you know this original butterfly touchdown 2002 it had been a story that I wrote after listening to the song um I don't know if you've heard it on an island by David Gilmore and um, I, don't, I don't think I have actually. Yeah, oh, it's a lovely he, song. There's a live yeah. version he does. It's particularly good. And he, um, and the song, I just um, thinking of the original story had been two kids like in the middle of a snowstorm in the year 2002 at school. Like they'd been, they you know, they would been. It was a big blizzard, and like the parents were coming to like pick the kids up, and this one girl is waiting for her mom, but there's another boy in the class that like she also kind of had a little bit of like a childish crush on and so it was um it was juxtaposed you know that was also juxtaposed against the super bowl too because it said like a few days before and then it mentions the super bowl but it had been through the lens of like um people who you know this event that had brought them together but it had that had brought the whole country together but like it was people who were like you know, after the sadness of 9-11 and stuff, now they were, like, learning to care for each other again, you know, calling each other joyfully, like, bringing the country together, and, like, these kids were brought mm-hmm. together, in a way, like, at school, and I'd insp- I and I guess the characters of the song on an island, the way it sounds to me is David Gilmore, I think, or the speaker, uh, you know, that he had in his head writing the song, looking back on, like, when they were younger and innocent, like, and sharing a moment, like, Remember that night, white steps in the moonlight, children again on resting swings, getting higher. Like, all of that was in my head, and I was thinking Mm. of these characters. Like, I feel like most of the characters I write are not characters with, like, a name specifically or that come from a particular story, but it comes from, like, this, you know, these nameless, like, from songs, honestly. And, like, that's my biggest, yeah. It sounds like you have a very kind of raw emotional connection. I do to to words rather than you know any kind of perceived concept. It does, especially where music's concerned. Music does speak uh, more emotionally than it does uh, through any kind of literary sense. Do you, do you find that it um, that you get affected quite hard by? Yeah. Like, by li- do, do, when was the last time, like, say you cried? Oh, at a book. Oh, I thought you were going to say yeah. at music. Um, <laughs> I can't remember the last time I. Have I ever cried a book? I can think of one book that made me horrified after. Like, but like I can That'll think of, I can think of a book that made me like so so sad and upset that I couldn't cry that like I'd almost been numbed by it. And oh, that book wow. for me is called um it's called Golden Child by Claire Adam. I believe she is a um a Trinidadian writer, I believe. Um she the story's set in Trinidad. And what it's about, it's about um this family and they're two bo- they're twin brothers, Peter and Paul. And what happens in it, as if I can remember correctly, I read it last year, is that um, is it Paul? It's Paul who goes missing. And Peter and Paul are complete opposites. Peter is like the gold, the golden child, as the book denotes. He like does everything he's supposed to do. He's high achieving. He's like the top of his class. He's like going to go to the best schools in Trinidad. And Paul is like kind of off the rails. He's clearly got some issues going on you know he didn't talk for like the first few years of his life and in the book um it begins with paul going missing and um their quest to find paul and it's it looks back a lot on the history of paul and peter and how they're very different kids and how the father 
treated them very differently and how he had a more difficult relationship with Paul and the way it, I'm not going to spoil the ending, but um, <laughs> it is, it is horrific. And um, I read it and I was like, I, I, I was like, I got to sit with this. Like I need a shower after reading this because it was so brutal. Um, again, I wish I could give it away, but I'm not, I know some people hate that. I personally don't mind spoilers, honestly. I'm the kind of person who like needs to be prepared if something awful is going to happen. So I'm like, just tell me, I don't care. Like, <laughs> I like, I like to know, but this book, it, um, you should, you should pick it up if you like, um, if you like family drama with like a, a gruesome and cold twist at the end. And I definitely do. Yeah. It has to be, it, it, um, well, I mean, that is how your family all died, wasn't it, Ben? Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Drama. Uh, but let's it keep was, that uh, I mean, air, Nick. off record, off record, off record. Yeah, <laughs> but that, that book really affected me because it was just like, I couldn't believe the character who did what he did. I wish I had, didn't have to be so vague. The character who did what he did, like, I said, how can you do what that person did? Like, what justifies oh, wow. that? That was amazing. And how, like, how has that dude done what he done? <laughs> But like how like I was saying to myself, what a <laughs> I loved it. I t- I'm gonna <laughs> yeah. bookend this little section based on that with a uh, my my godfather. Yeah, let me let me see if I'm even getting the author's name. Golden Child. You check that name. Cool. My uh, my godfather's from the states. And he was telling me I think it was Judge Judy on one of those shows. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and uh, he gave me a direct quote from a woman on that show, and uh, I think it perfectly describes the end of the book you're talking about. Yeah. And it is, I don't know what have had happened, but all I know is something had better be did. You can look it up. It's Golden Child by Claire Adam. That's her name. I misset her name before. It's Adam, not McAdam. So Golden Child by Claire Adam. It's um Claire Adam. Yeah, it's a little it's um it just found me saying like how can you justify and it's funny because the book also makes you kind of slightly simp like I don't know if sympathize is the word, but it makes you like not completely hate him it doesn't make you like him but it makes you sort of see where he's coming from but you think how could he have like done or not even done it's not that he did something but he um he was complacent in something and he allowed something horrific to happen so he kind of masterminded it i'm like how did you like how could you allow this to happen to like someone that you love like it's yeah um, that's all i'm gonna say about it but yeah no it sounds good yeah um we're actually down to the final question, okay. which is uh, I, been a lovely guest. It's been really, oh, really nice you. to hear a really yeah. fresh perspective. Like, I particularly enjoyed all the, the stuff about music inspiring you to write. Because yeah. I, I actually write with with music on a Me lot too. of the time. Me too. Um, yeah. And it's, well, it sort of depends, but it, it does seep in. And uh, I really enjoy yeah, that feeling it, of it seeping in. It seeped in. into this story too. The um, There's a line. I don't know if you caught it. I don't know if you know the song, The Hole of the Moon by the Water Boys. I was listening to that. And there's a line where it says, um, uh, where it said, swearing up and down that the crescent was enough when she wanted the whole moon. I kind of got that the song kind of has lyrics that says, mm. I, I, did, I didn't plagiarize the lyric, obviously, but, but the line I was thinking of was like, I saw the crescent, you saw the whole of the moon. And like, I was thinking of that and I wrote it and I was like, huh, like, I, I know I can't get, um, I mean, I can't get in trouble. I didn't quote it, but like that really seeped in. But it, yeah. And it actually, yeah. I, I think I possibly prefer your turn of phrase actually. Cause yeah. it, it, at least in, in, in relation in the context of the story, but, yeah. um, but so the final question is, um, this one actually is a bit of deceptive, sort of deceptively. We've also been told off for saying it incorrectly. Do uh, it. So I'm gonna I'm going to say it incorrectly again. Um, yes. Which is, uh, could you give us one really 
uninteresting or disinteresting fact about yourself? Oh, gosh. Yeah, there's a lot of disinteresting facts about myself. Um, um, I would say... Um, well, a lot of people find this surprising. Less interesting about the fact that I have no first cousins. All right, that's all I can think of now. <laughs> oh. I have plenty of seconds so, and thirds, but no first. And people are like, really? Do you have... Uh... <laughs> Do your either of your parents have siblings? They do, but um, they they have one sibling each, and neither sibling is married nor has children. And people get confused. They're like, "Wow, like you're Armenian? I thought you like you know your cousins could like fill a stadium." I'm like, "No, like the second and third cousins can, but not the not the first. Oh wow, is that is that a thing? I didn't I didn't know <laughs> Apparently that. Apparently, I don't is. think we. <laughs> I don't think we have Armenian prejudices here in the UK. No, I, I don't even think you have a lot of Armenians hasn't, hasn't in got the UK. Here. <laughs> Our racism is so old-fashioned. We don't have like that modern American racism. We haven't got any. It's not even it's, really. It's, it's, it's not even really oh, racism. I... It's just like stereotypes in the media are like constantly shown, and it's like, and they're like, really? I, people like genuinely think it without malice, and probably because like a lot of us do have a lot of cousins. Like there are people that I know who like come from large families are like, do you know so-and-so, so-and-so's cousin and so-and-so's cousin? I'm like, wow, I'm ashamed that I didn't know that I've known this person for years. And it's like <laughs> half the time when people say like, you know, my cousin, like, you know, this person's cousin. And like, I'm like, yeah, I do. Like, it's just such a small like ethnicity and community, especially where I'm from. There's like a lot of us. So it's like, yeah. I will say, because I don't want to upset anyone. We do absolutely have some really you know, advanced <laughs> forward thinking racists yeah, we do too. who are we- doing some really hard work on making the world a, far fucking worse place yeah it's, we have a president we have a president like that but he's not we, i wouldn't call him forward thinking but he's he's definitely making he's definitely making it up i don't know whether i'd place. call him thinking <laughs> he's yeah. not thinking no well you know what i mean i feel like some of the stuff that he does i wonder if he's like intentionally like if it's some part of a master plan like his mishandling of coronavirus sometimes i'm like honestly is he doing this because like you know he um uh, is is he trying to like do something like, i sometimes wonder if like he is trying to like distract from from like the election somehow like people have all sorts of theories about him but it's I, like i suspect there's pro- probably some sort of like you know um staffer who who is spinning it in that regard but i really like to think of him just being absolutely terrified by by the weight <laughs> of his position and just and he d- does something awful yeah goes back to his room starts scrolling twitter and he's just weeping and crying (laughs) because the burden of his position is so intense and that's where it all comes from it all comes from this place of fear and confusion and and sort of well a lack i mean Um, yeah he like never wanted to be president i don't i think there's one more thing for him to win like i don't think he wanted the responsibility he even said once during an interview like i miss my old life or something like that it's like yeah we (laughs) we miss your old life too like (laughs) we all do i I don't know whether this is apocryphal, but I did I did hear a um, a story about how they thought that Hillary had won in oh, yeah. the Trump HQ, and they were like, <laughs> oh, "Okay, that's that's cool." And then then somebody told them that they won a swung a swing state or something, oh, uh, and they started to panic because they were like, uh, "We can win this. Uh, we are not. We don't actually have a plan in place to win this." <laughs> Quickly, you know, um, writing an acceptance speech or whatever. Um, but uh, probably not true. But. I like to think that it's all absolute chaos behind the scenes because it certainly looks it from the outside. Yeah, it's there have been some books written exposing it and like what I would when I visited the bookstore like though like Fire and Fury is one like inside the Trump White House and then the book written by his niece about you know what their family was like like mm. and those books were like proudly on display people were picking them up and reading it I was like yeah 
that's uh yeah <laughs> well it's been a bit of a roller coaster this one i said let's not get bleak and then we repeatedly got bleak <laughs> we've had some but fun as well we have had there have been some lovely high points Sharice, you've been a genuinely fantastic guest. Thank you. Where can people reach you if they want to say hello uh, or tell you they enjoyed you on the podcast? On social media? To talk like Donald Trump. Um, uh, yeah, where, where well, can they get you? Well, if you want to hear me talk like Donald Trump, you can head on over to my, my personal Instagram, which is um, Mediterranean Homesick Blues, all one word. And Or you just search my name, Sharice Saruni, and type it in and it will come up. And... Um, you can find some Donald Trump impressions on there. You can find the COVID-19 We Are the World video on there. But it's um, that's one of them. Uh, I have a different one for Sandbox Police because we put out episodes on YouTube TV. I mean, not YouTube TV, YouTube and IGTV on Instagram. Um, you can also say hello to me at my public Facebook page, which is just Sharice Sarunian. Just everything's under my real name. Um, also Twitter. Twitter is Sharice Naomi Z. That's my handle. And you can type in my, my name and into Twitter and it'll, it'll be there too. So. Perfect. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us. Yes, thanks we'll again. We'll drop all the links everywhere we can and we'll pop a tweet out tagging you in it. So anyone who wants to find Sharice can. Thank you. Uh, the only thing left to do today is to say a huge thank you to our three toppest of tiered patrons who are Matt McLaren, Gary Laird, and Scott Byrne, who I can say, we did some tests. We did some actual science. Uh, not the COVID test. That one hasn't come back yet. But <laughs> the three of them actually tested nine out of ten on sexiest boy babes in the entire galaxy. So well done, chaps. Can and we'll see you on the other side. My, my, what an adventure. You'll have to come back another time. Our adventurers are off now in search of more stories. If you'd like to meet our adventuring party, you can reach them by Raven at Bookcase Tiny. Or, alternatively, you can help them on Patreon to fund their adventures. Those tavern ales don't pay for themselves, I'm afraid. But thank you for joining us. Now get out of my wizard tower. I have wizardy things to do. Bloody do-good is always coming round here on something. Thank you.